Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. We're recording live as part of our conference series. Today, we're in Edmonton at the Edmonton Real Estate Forum. Of course, I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Michael Smith, the Senior Vice President of Western Canada for One Properties. Welcome on board, Mike. Thank you. So, you know, again, we always do this, start from the scratch. You know, did you wake up one day when you were 11 years old and wanted to get into real estate? Like, what was the story? I, you know, I've always found real estate to be an interesting avenue. In fact, I grew up in what would be a fringe business associated with real estate. Growing up, my father ran the largest nonprofit cemetery corporation in North America. And, and so uh, I've always had real estate in my, in my veins. Land holdings. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just much smaller uh, units. So you're you're an undertaking family. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so so then so how did that kind of transpire? Then as you were going through university, you kind of always had your eye on real estate. You know, I graduated high school and I and I knew that I wanted to go directly into business. And in fact, I chose to go to Bishop University out of high school because they were one of the few universities in Canada that offered a bachelor of business administration going in year one, as opposed to having to do two or three years of of arts before you you know, focused on business and. I got into that program and realized they were teaching me grade 11 uh, economics again and realized shortly thereafter that uh, I wanted to do anything but business. And so... The, it's an existential know, moment. Well, and, yeah. and Bishop's <laughs> University, it, it, it's a pretty small school in the eastern townships of Quebec. And, and, oh, yeah. And it, it's about 60% in the business program. And the re- remainder of the programs are all fairly small in scale. So uh, geography was the sort of the next desire of mine and and uh, and it was a, it was such a small piece of the school that uh, that that led me to leaving bishops after the first year right and then where did you, you land i ended up spending a year and a year and a half off and landed in december of uh, of the next year in uh, at queens university and tried to figure out what what programs i could get involved in where you had to get the professor to sign you into their class uh, since it was partway through the year, over the Christmas holiday break, and so I ended up with some geology classes and some some paleontology classes, perfect, et cetera. So very real estate, uh, yeah, it did good it, groundwork. Uh, it was for a very real very ground based, but uh, <laughs> but that again, I spent a year and a half there, and that didn't quite satisfy my my academic needs, and 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 then I finally found myself academically at Ryerson University in Toronto at the School of Urban and Regional Planning, and and. So there's the, there's the that was the yeah. real that was that real <laughs> aha moment and 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 quite frankly you, you know you go through a, a program of urban planning in a school like Ryerson and and there's there's really three streams of business for you and one is one is sort of that sort of provincial level policy planning aspect of the of the the industry the other one is the the municipal city planning and then the third one is the private development and that was always the one that that fascinated me the most while I was in that program I was fortunate enough to spend a summer working at Weir and Fold's uh, law firm in, in Toronto and as a planning assistant for on their OMB work. And then uh, the next year I spent, I spent working for First Pro, which is now Smart Centers, again in the, in the planning group uh, there. That's quite different experiences working at a law firm and then working at, a, at a, what a major developer, major landowner. And then where'd you go from there? So from there, I, you know, I, uh, I always knew that, that now it, it, was, it was real estate development, private sector development that was of interest to me. 
and and I'd seen it both from a development side as well as the the legal side, and and so I ended up going to law school. I went to the University of Western Ontario's law school, and focused on real estate as best you can in law school. Law school is pretty a pretty broad program and, and doesn't have a lot of specialization in it. And from there, I was again because of my experience with First Pro. I was able, after first year law school, to land a job with McCarthy Tatro in Toronto as a planner, not as a, not as a law student, but as a planner for the mm. summer as they, they needed some additional um, support in that group at that point in time. And so that parlayed into, into a summer position in the law field there, and then, and then I articled there and, and was an associate there for a few years, practicing municipal law, working on, on most of the, sort of the big 416 development projects came through our office. So you're seeing a lot of stuff then at that point. Absolutely. Getting exposure to some really interesting things, I'm sure. And it, the exposure in that office, because that, that office was was very downtown Toronto, 416 sort of focused as far yeah. as their client base. I didn't work on a lot of subdivision work. It was mostly high-rise, multifamily, hotel projects. So the exciting stuff. Well, I, that's what I think is exciting, and that's, that's what led me to, to really focus my career on that aspect of the business. So did you, at some point did you kind of say, okay, well, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore? You know, I, it was all, real estate was always the end goal. And so my view going into the, the practice of law was if I made partner, I'd failed. And that was, <laughs> you know, it's not a bad place to be, but it was just... No uh, offense to our listeners that are lawyers, yeah, want to be lawyers. That it's just okay. wasn't yeah. my end game. That was, that was all. And, and it can be a great, great place for some, but it wasn't my end game. So it wasn't a second existential crisis that uh, led you out of a lot. It was a go to plan. No, I was oh, absolutely, and and so uh, an opportunity, an opportunity presented itself with one of my clients, uh, and that was Tridel, and 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 I took that opportunity and uh, and never looked back. And For context, what year was that? You kind of jumped ship or transitioned? That would have been around two thousand and. Three, two thousand four. Okay, so that this period in the law firm, seeing the developments, that was post the nineteen ninety one ninety two crisis. This is out of that, getting good as the, as the market the was, was. The market was good and growing. Yeah, growing well. Yeah, no, yeah. He probably wouldn't have left the practice of law for real estate in nineteen ninety three. No, that'd be a tough leap of faith. <laughs> it would have. It would have been absolutely. <laughs> Although it's it's interesting. I had a, you know, I had a, a discussion one day when I was. Just starting the law firm, I was coming back from a lunch with one of the senior partners, and I had a discussion about it and saying, oh, it's great because your business is doing so well right now, and, and a few years ago, it wasn't, wasn't all that rosy. And, and he actually looked at me, and he said, well, the difference is right now our clients are all working and taking the deal. I was busier, this is him speaking, I was busier previously fighting all the legislative changes and so forth because that's when the developer clients have the time to focus their energies and their monies on changing the policy. But when, when the economy is going so well and they're selling too many units, <laughs> they've got to focus on delivering product to their customer. And as such, the law changes. It's just You just work on and end up papering more deals, but it's, it's giving in to more things. Yeah, sure, the, which, we're, which we're seeing now. Things are cyclical, it sounds like. So let's keep going. Try Dow. For how many years, and then where? So I spent about six or seven years with Tridel, and uh, great place it, to learn. Absolutely, it's uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. They're a great organization that really they really focus on putting the quality of the product first, and, and you know they believe in they believe in their marketing. Right? It's Tridel built. It's not it's not just a saying. It's it's something that that organizationally they they've ingrained in their team from top to bottom. 
a great place to learn doing a lot of product. The, you know, the time that I was there, the, the worst year for us would have been 2009, where we did just under 1,200 unit sales. And uh, the best year would have been 2007, so a two-year delta, but we did a little bit north of 2,400 unit sales. So. And what were you doing there? So I, when I left, I was the vice president of planning and development. Okay. So you really focused on the, the front end of the, of the process? Yeah, acquisition, acquisition and approvals primarily. Yeah, yeah. So you guys know the city planners pretty well. Absolutely. And now that also led to, at Tridel, that the planning group also managed the, the permitting process, even on the building's permit, just because of their relationships with city right. staff. So you're getting subgrade, above grade, anything you needed to do throughout that process? Absolutely. Cool. And then, so why'd you leave? It sounds like a great gig. Well, sometimes the grass is the grass is, is always greener on the other side of the, of the fence, and and so an opportunity came along with a much smaller, more innovative, nimble developer, and uh, so I took that opportunity and and uh, fairly quickly learned that that was probably the wrong choice, and, and developer so, to remain nameless just to, uh, yeah, to save that's face, probably yeah, better that way, and so that just really didn't work out, and and sort of shortly after I joined there an opportunity came forward to join uh, WAM Development Group, which is now called One Properties. And so, you know, I did, I did my diligence in, on, on WAM, and, and it was an organization that was, that's focused on, on all asset types and is quite innovative and, and entrepreneurial in, in nature. Now, when I joined, WAM had developed 146 residential units from ground up. And they'd also converted a hotel into residential condos, which was about 70 suites as well. So they didn't have a heck of a, a large book on the on the residential or multi-residential side. But uh, so as part what, of what, what were they doing then? If they were focused on the single-family or multi-family side, what were they? So they're they're, they're predominantly they're, commercial. They're predominantly commercial industrial developers at the time. We're probably developing a million to a million and a half square feet of industrial space in Alberta every year. Wow. And then retailers, grocery anchored strip centers, up to a, a large format. Shopping centers. So it had all the infrastructure in place, just not in this particular asset Ab- class. Absolutely. And so as part of my diligence, obviously, I wanted to ensure that, uh, that they were committed to excellence. And so they were certainly and, and are certainly known as, as a best-in-class developer within, within the product types that they developed. So that gave me the comfort to understand that, that I'd be allowed to, uh, to certainly continue to work with best-in-class talent and, and put my brand on the, on the organization. So what's the, what's the background of uh, One Development? What's their origin story? Probably the next best. Yeah, like when did the WAM turn into One? And, and I mean, I guess how long ago was this, just for context? So the, how long did you start that? Because you came in there was basically, the, it sounds like they effectively had done no residential development aside from two small projects. So how long ago was that? So I joined, I joined in uh, June of 2012. Okay. At that point it was... It was so not that long ago, only seven years? Seven years. Yeah, okay. At that point, it was it was WAM development, which was created in the uh, in the late '80s, and it originally stood for Western Asset Management. Mm, okay. So part of our rebranding in, in 2016 to one was a bit of a redefinition of the organization. The original two founding partners were no longer with the organization, and we were no longer solely Western based. We had offices in in Edmonton as our head office. We have a, an office in Calgary and another office in Toronto. And, uh, and we do projects in all of those markets. And we're primarily a developer as opposed to an asset manager. So we do it, have just, some, it didn't align it didn't very really well align at all. With yeah, the no, of so course. It, was, it was about creating a brand that, 
You come up with a new acronym for WHAM, I guess, yeah. if you wanted to. It's pretty catchy. WHAM is pretty catchy. Yeah, I like WHAM, but so is one, to be fair. Yeah. Does one yeah. stand for anything? One stands really for our, our organizational philosophy, and, and it, it's one broader team working together in a, in a lot of ways, whether that's simply our internal stakeholders or, or both with our internal and external stakeholders. So I think it's, it's something that naming didn't come easy, and it, it was certainly something that, that had a lot of thought and, and, and time put into it. The organization that we engaged to assist us with the, with the rebrand spent a lot of time interviewing internally as well as with our partners and our consultants that we use to understand how we operate as an organization and, and sort of the corporate philosophies and, and approaches. So I think that, that it was a name that, that evolved probably from a thousand names that were created by the, the branding company. <laughs> yeah. that was that a fun did. exercise or infuriating <laughs> exercise? Or both, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say it was a bit of both. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I find the, the marketing and the, the creativity side of the marketing engaging and, and interesting. You're creating something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But it's also, you know, there's, it's something you're going to live with for a long time. It's a little different than when you're doing a specific project marketing, which, again, there's a, a history and a value to that, and, but it's going to last for five years, ten years maybe a brand of a, a specific project, whereas the brand of the organization is intended to last a lot longer than that. So. Well, and the brand of the organization will have an impact on the brand of all of the, the projects. Absolutely. So it's, it's the parent brand, so to speak. Do you remember what the other sort of like the three finalists were? Because I always find that it was at one, two, and three. Like, how does the... <laughs> you know, I, I honestly don't remember what they, what they were. And it was, it was interesting because we, you know, we spent probably a year and a half, two years. Oh, I'm sure. And... and and going through so many different iterations. And, and it's also, you know, you tie in not just the naming, but then logo and creative development. And then, and then how, of course, as you mentioned a minute ago, how that parent brand then represents each of the subs, because obviously we've got the residential piece, but we also have the industrial, the office, and the retail pieces. And so it has to be something that is fluid and works for each of the different components of our, of our broader organization. So your switch to, at the time, Wham, would have involved moving cities too. Because we're in Edmonton right now, which is one HQ, is it not? This is, yes. this is your town. Yeah, no, I, I moved, uh, I, I packed up my family and, and moved them across the country in, in 2012. I, I moved out here in June of 2012 to start working and, and was commuting back and forth effectively for the remainder of that summer. We still had kids in, in soccer and swimming programs that, that needed to be completed and, and then moved the family out across the country just prior to Labor Day of 2012, so they could. And you uh, went from sort of Toronto. 2012 was was it was really just ramping up at the time to Edmonton, Alberta, that was really kind of struggling at the time. So you probably wow. weren't the most popular. It's still, it would have been good times in Alberta. In then. 2012, yeah. okay, fair enough. Was it 13, 14? I can't. I, yeah. I lost track of the time frame. Yeah. But, it, it okay, been, so you were going to say you were not the most popular person, but it sounds like it was okay at the time. I'm not sure anyone from Toronto is always the most popular person in, in, <laughs> yeah, in Edmonton. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I'm sure you don't uh, advertise that but, here. Uh, yeah. It's you know what I found Edmonton to be ultimately a very engaging family oriented place and I think it's been very welcoming for not only myself in the in the business side of it but also for my family and my wife and my children in the uh, community side of things and I think that that's certainly been something that made the transition easier uh, another thing that my wife and I did is when I was living at the hotel here they came out and visited for a week and we we spent two days and probably toured 30 or 40 houses all over the city and they're sort of in a, in a certain price range. And, and that allowed us to narrow it down to a smaller area geographically. And so we, we made a conscious decision as a couple to, if we're moving across the country, we're going to also change lifestyle a bit. 
So in Toronto, we were living a more suburban existence. Mm-hmm. And on a, you know, on a good day, my drive to the office was 35 or 40 minutes oh, in you're the morning lucky. in. You're lucky. <laughs> well, that's short. That's because I went in at 6, 6, 6.30. <laughs> but my, if I came home during rush hour, it would be an hour and a half to two and a half hours. Yeah. Uh, on Sounds a about day. right. Eh? Everyone in Toronto that's listening is like, yep, that's, so, that's right. Yeah. So now, now I live probably on a bad day, 15 minutes from the office and a good day, 10 minutes. So it was about changing that. And it was also about, we were moving to a city where we didn't know anyone. And, you know, how would my wife fare if, if she needs my assistance and I'm an hour and a half away from where yeah, she's at? Of course. Yeah. We don't have that, that family network that we, uh, that we had in Toronto. So. so make the transition, you're here. And what are the first steps, right, of starting, starting something? It must have been exciting, but a bit, probably a bit scary at the same time. Well, it was, it was exciting, and it was a great time in that Wham had a couple of multifamily residential projects that they needed some expertise on. The biggest one, obviously, was their partnership with Kate's Group on the Ice District in central Edmonton, and you know that was part of the draw, quite frankly, for me. Is, so they had is, that locked up, like that was all that, done? The deal was done. Okay. Just, that is a mega... Yeah, mega for those that don't know, and that's the... Maybe you explain it. Go ahead. You well, I mean, as, yeah. a, as a development person, I mean, the opportunity to work on... 25 acres in the downtown of a, a city of a million or more people just doesn't come along that often. With a state-of-the-art and, arena and so, to boot. Absolutely. Yeah. So right now they, there's the, uh, the Rogers Place Arena, which has been open and running for three years now and is one of the best arena facilities in North America. If not sure. the world. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's sort of the, the cornerstone of this. And then, and then we've developed a... Too bad about the hockey team. Sorry, I had to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Don't We're let, don't, don't let me. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've developed a, a 600,000 square foot Class A office tower called the Edmonton Tower, which houses uh, as a primary tenant is the uh, the city of Edmonton. Uh, we've also are currently under construction with the JW Marriott Hotel. How many beds? Which is about 350 room hotel. And on top of that is the Legends Private Residences, which is a luxury condominium product that starts on the 23rd floor and goes up to the 54th floor. There's 261 suites there. And ranging in size from 522 square feet, which is small from Edmonton standards, up to about 10,000 square feet. So large for wow. any standards. And, and you've got more. It keeps going, doesn't and then, it? Uh, yeah, that's that tower. And then we've got the... Uh, and that was the initial project, ultimately? So the, the arena proper and the Edmonton Tower would be the original project. And the government piece, lease, I think, the, was the which was the, yeah. Which was the linchpin to that. And then um, the hotel and, and legends followed quite quickly thereafter. We launched sales reservation on the, the condo units in, in October of 15 and were effectively 90% sold by the end of the first weekend. Wow. And so that, that was very successful in that regard. Then we, um, we were fortunate to be able to secure Stantec as lead tenant of, a, of another office tower, which is called the Stantec Tower. And that's a 30-story Class A office tower with about 700,000 square feet of, of commercial office space. And on top of that, we have 37 floors of residential called the Sky Residences. And that building in total is 66 occupied floors, 69 floors if you count from a building code perspective, and, and is the, the tallest building in Canada outside of Toronto. So it's, it's a very substantial yeah. tower. Those towers, plus the former Greyhound station, which will house the new Loblaw City Market and a, an additional third residential tower, all frame about an acre and a half public plaza 
that will be will be operated and programmed by by the Oilers Entertainment Group. So it'll always always be animated and active for different by different groups and different uses to be mobilized and activated. Which we're seeing more and more around North America, where they they're putting these sort of squares next to the entertainment facilities for just additional overflow. I mean, in Toronto, of course, there's Jurassic Park or Maple Leaf Square, whatever you want to call it, where there are people standing outside celebrating during the games. I'm assuming that's kind of the vision. Yeah, our group and our design team looked at a number of examples around North America. and Nashville's got the similar kind of concept as well. And most of them are doing some some sort of thing. I mean, obviously, uh, at Maple Leaf Square, it's a fairly tight area mm-hmm. um, with um, I don't think that was by design it, to be honest that was, with you that was a leftover space I think yeah. more than anything else it was kind of before the I mean the Air Canada Centre when it was Air Canada Centre was developed with a bit of a, an austerity we can build something in the private sector on time and on budget and that was that approach there <laughs> which was very different than the Skydome development in, yeah. in and so that was a little bit of a different approach and we looked at a number of examples across North America, including things like LA Live in, in Los Angeles. And, mm-hmm. and the, Which is an awesome space down well, there. Well, we've got, and, and our scale is almost identical to their scale of space. It's a different layout, different shape. What's the uh, total project value, just for context? The, the total project value would be about $6 billion. That's mega project. Yeah, so you haven't finished listing off, there's still some other things yeah, on the, mean, uh, coming in the pipeline, well, that, right? And there's, there's an additional North piece, which we part of that. I think the development value of, of the piece that we've got under development or construction would be around $3 billion. So that's that piece. The challenge that we had when looking at, at examples from, from other parts of North America was those spaces can be wonderful and, and activated when they're busy. They can also be no man's land or ghost lands when they're not. And so it's about keeping it programmed and activated. And I think one of the things that we learned from looking at other examples is that that you really need all of the uses to be there. So you need the offices there so they support the restaurants and lunches and during the weekdays. Obviously, event nights, you don't have as much challenge keeping those, those spaces activated. But, you know, a fully booked arena is, is busy 150, 160 days a year. So it was also then about getting the residences in because then we, got, we have more activity during dinners and weekends and, and what are otherwise the off times. And at the LA Live example, there's a number of restaurants with big patios that surround the space so that you can feel the vibe even when there's nothing going on. Yeah, we've designed our, our restaurant spaces to have, to that have similar... as, as many patio opportunities as possible, also recognizing that we are in a winter city, so to create those spaces that are at least usable for you know, eight or nine months a year means that we had to focus on the ability to have heating elements and, and other things mm-hmm. that, that uh, L.A. doesn't have a, a challenge Doesn't with. have the problem with, no. When I was taking the taxi in from the airport for this conference, I believe I noticed a sign for a casino as part of the project. Am I mistaken in that? There is a casino connected to the arena, effectively. And that is part uh, of your development. Place. So that is actually the, the casino and the Oilers Entertainment Group offices is actually a, a private development attached to the arena and it is part of our development yes okay this is truly mixed use i think i've lost track of the asset classes at this point that uh, you've included if casino is an asset class yeah. casinos there are the only thing that we do that that isn't there is industrial yeah <laughs> no nice. self-storage facilities yeah <laughs> no we don't have any of that. <laughs> no, is there a retirement home component to this <laughs> they've i thought they, you they, just they, made a they, list of all the asset classes you want to make sure you covered them all <laughs> There's not a retirement home in, in the existing in the existing piece. Maybe the north side, maybe the north component. So what's the projected timeline from shovel hitting the ground to 
when you're done, done, done with this? I think that, that the project has really, I would say, sort of two major elements to it. And we're, we're nearing the end of the south phase. So the arena proper and, and south of it, which are the buildings that I described to you, you know, really was shoveling the ground in, in 2015 for the arena. And, and you know, with, we will be out of, out of there by 2021, 2022. The north portion of the lands, which is, you know, another, another 12 or 15 high-rise buildings with 3,000-plus units in is probably on its own a 10- to 15-year plan. And that is a combo of condo and apartments, rental. And some retail, and I mean, not yeah. destination retail like the plaza itself, yeah. but more service retail that would service. And out of the, all of the units, how many units, sorry, how many units have been developed today or are in the middle of development? So Legends is 261 suites, Sky is 483 suites, and then the unnamed building where the Greyhound was is 582 suites. So and that's going to be a rental. And that's a rental, right. a rental tower. I'm curious, you know, you, you talked about the, the Stantec office tower with the sky suites above being the largest building outside of Toronto. What was the experience of the city going through that planning process? I mean, that, I guess, is your bread and butter, but you were unfamiliar with the Edmonton jurisdiction, at the, so, so to speak. I would say that on the entire arena project, the Ice District project, the city has been a, a great partner to our joint venture and, and has really been open to looking at, at all options and have been very supportive. Quite frankly, most of the buildings within Ice District couldn't exist if the old city centre airport was still in existence just because of the, uh, the, height, the height mapping coming from the runways. So that was really the trigger to allow truly tall buildings in downtown. Prior to that, I think about 150 metres was the, the maximum height limit. And when does that get shut down? That was shut down in and around when I joined in 2012. I'm, I'm not sure of the exact timeline. I know it was... I, don't, I think it was still open when I joined, but it was, it was already slated for closing. Okay. And do you think that was by design? I think that was part of the, sure. part of the dialogue. Absolutely. So what are you most proud of out of that? I mean, that's a lot, and we'll move on to other projects, but just to wrap that up, what, what do you think, you know, if there's a legacy or, you know, what, what's what? the thing you most want to, you know, emphasize? Are you a sports guy would probably be the question. Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah, maybe the arena. It's a beautiful arena. If anyone's been here, it is, it is a really attractive-looking structure. The arena is a fantastic building, but I think, you know, as a true development person, I think the thing that, that brings me the most pride and, and, you know, is really the reason I moved here, which is, which is where, you know, you put your money where your mouth is. And, and, in, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in the positive benefits of development and redevelopment in our communities. And I think that, that the vibrancy of downtown Edmonton already has been significantly improved and increased. And, you know, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. So as we continue to, to build out the, the remains of the ice district and other developers continue to develop additional residential opportunities in and around the downtown core, I think we're really changing the face of downtown Edmonton. It was, it was you know, prior to me joining here and, and developments like Ice District, I think it was kind of a place where people didn't really want to spend their evenings and weekends. And now it's becoming a more desirable place to to pass your time. So you're having a real impact on the community. I think it's, it's really having a, a very positive impact on, on downtown Edmonton, absolutely. Uh, there's another project I'd like to ask you about. So it's, obviously it's no you know, secret that Alberta struggled through 2015, 2016, 2017. You had a major project come on stream in uh, early 2017. So I'd love to hear you know, how you worked through that process and how much sleep did you lose? And <laughs> well, it, I, you those, know, it, it's... 
for, so, for background, that was Versus, right? Yeah, so we the, developed the Versus project, which is a, a rental project in Calgary. It's uh, two towers, 17 and 34 stories, 442 residential suites, about 8,200 square feet of, of grid-related retail, and about 15,000 square feet of second-floor office space. And uh, when we started construction on that project in, in, I guess that would have been about early 2015, late 2014, we had an economy that was ticking along pretty well and all things were pointed up. We delivered the project into the marketplace at the end of January, start of February of 2017, which I probably say is about as poor a timing as you could have in, into the marketplace for, for new rental project in Calgary. That being said, we, I, I think we really saw the market acceptance of it, and there was, there was truly that sort of fleet of quality. It was, it was considered a best-in-class building. Uh, at the time, there were a few other entrants in the marketplace that were of similar quality and scale. And so while we did not hit our pro forma rental rates on the face rate and maybe offer, offered more incentives to lease up the building initially, we were able to obtain, you know, 100% leasing on that building in, in about nine months, which is that's pretty good. Which was certainly ahead of projection on a uptake basis. Can you talk about the disconnect between uh, pro forma numbers and actual? Yeah, I mean, we we would have been we would have been performing that building in the two dollar and eighty cent a square foot range, roughly, and our first leases would have been signed in the in the upper two thirties. It's now back to around pro forma numbers today. Um, Twenty four months later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it took you know it, take, it takes a little bit of while to stabilize the building, and and the economy you know certainly impacted the project in that regard. That being said, that's one of the it's one of the benefits that we have working in in Alberta in a non rent controlled environment is that that it gives the the developer the opportunity to lower rates to meet market when the market's soft, but also then to get back to market when the market's healthier and stronger. I have to ask the question, how was your lender handling all this while, while it was going on? Our partner in that, in that project was uh, a pension fund, and they were funding from equity. So okay. there, was, there was no actual There was lender, no financing so on it. Oh, I perfect. Uh, you're, you're fortunate, yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, and that's it. And ultimately, when you look at partners like that, we were very fortunate, but it's also... To me, the question that you have to ask when you're commencing one of these scale of projects in, in a Calgary or Edmonton is, do you believe in the Alberta market long term? Because, uh, again, you can't really time a market, but you can, um, you, know, you can always sit on the sidelines if you want, and you'll never, you'll never really time that market. So. How do you approach financing? I mean, for, for the ICE district, I'm sure it was a little bit different just given its scope and scale, but for maybe some of the projects that you have on the go now or, or future development projects, what is one's strategy? So, I mean, our senior vice president of finance has developed great relationships with a number of, of lenders, both the local and the national lenders, and, and is generally able to uh, to go out and get pretty pretty solid term sheets. Are you trying to? Are you going more aggressive on your leverage points, or do you kind of have a what's your what's your sort of risk appetite with the, with exposure to debt? Yeah, I mean, we we certainly on we deal with both traditional and non traditional lenders. Yeah. Obviously, the, there's there's leverage rates that the the Schedule A banks will will go to, and and depending on the type of product and the location and marketplace, and in some cases we will we will lever that additionally through MES financing. Right. We tend not to get over over allocated on on MES, and but it, it allows you to deploy your capital it, it more allows quickly, us to right? Capital yeah. and allows us to, to develop more projects in a timely manner. One of the things that that we've done as an organization over the last number of years is that. That as we've gotten into projects, even of scale, we 
um, all of our deals allow us the opportunity to to have significant ownership positions after the completion. So we're not just a merchant developer. We're we're we have the intents of, of being a long term owner. Right. And that's is that strictly for cash flow, or maybe because you've got enough equity that you can you don't need to redeploy, you don't need to to sell to basically liquidate that asset. I think it's it's really I mean. It's really more of a strategic approach by the organization. Again, we we we're, we don't need to liquidate it as you as you said, and you know you, you can make good income and profit through development, but you really truly build wealth through ownership. Is that the strategy on the commercial side too? Then when they're on all of everything our else, okay, okay, okay. So that's it's consistent then throughout the organization. Absolutely. Yeah. If we if we are on the topic of debt though, financing the ice district must have been a I mean messy just the sense of complicated given that you've got a very, very big ticket number and you've got fractured ownership and you've got a variety of different asset classes, some of them non-traditional. You're looking at, say, the well, casino and you're looking at the, the sports arena. How did that process go? So d- to clarify, that the, the arena proper is not... Our, my organization and our joint venture is not part of that. So the Oilers Entertainment Group and the city are the developers of the, oh, okay. of the arena. The owner of the arena is the city... And then the Oilers Entertainment Group has a long-term uh, lease or, or arrangement on that. The casino piece and the Oilers office, which is attached to it, that is part of the private development, which is the joint venture. Okay. And then all of the other pieces that I talked to you about were. So obviously there was there's a lot of different lenders in in that project. All of them probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most most yeah. would be would be represented there, and and so, um, uh, but we worked with one very strong lead, and. And they've been, they've been a, not only the lead but a substantial investor on every one of, on every one of the, the, the sub projects, if you will. Which is important. I mean, it comes back to, to relationship and partnership. You need to have people you trust. Absolutely. So, what are you working on now? What's the what's next? Well, we're, there's there's still lots of work going on in, in Ice District in the Edmonton marketplace. We've got we've got three projects that are just broken ground or are nearly to break ground uh, in 2019. So that'll, that'll keep us busy on the execution side of things. And we have 646-unit project in Calgary that we broke ground uh, late last year on. So our execution side is pretty full, and we need to, we need to make sure that we, uh, we continue to build the pipeline projects for the future. How's the land acquisition market right now? We had uh, Curtis Way from RMS Group on previously, and he was saying that he feels land prices have stabilized and that there seems to be more players approaching, you know, when there were our bids for, for land. Are, are you seeing the same kind of thing in, in the city of Edmonton? Yeah, I think, I think that land is fairly stable, both in Edmonton and Calgary. There is a period of fairly significant fluctuation, and, and I'm Calgary more so than Edmonton. Edmonton was kind of on, the, on a sort of lower plane, and and is stabilized, whereas Calgary was all over the place in my mind. There was some very high, le- high land transactions and some quite low, and I think it's seeming to find a a place, a happy medium, if you if you will. So yeah. I think it, it's, but it's it, there's opportunities out there, but there's not a lot of steals either. So Michael, do you ever work on any uh, small projects? I guess that depends on definition of small. The, the Anything less one, than five billion or six billion. Uh, well, yeah, yeah the smallest the smallest project we've got on the books right now is one of the phases of our South Park on White project. Where so is we, that? We, is that we Edmonton? Broke ground. It, it's in Edmonton. It's on White Avenue at 100 White Avenue 106th Street, and it's ground floor retail with 99 residential suites on top. So Just a little project. Yeah, <laughs> Just keeps you busy. It's yeah. a side project that. Uh, 
It's yeah. a w- weekend activity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michael, we want to thank you for coming on. It's super interesting. Just the scale of these projects is mind-boggling. And, you know, we love to, love to hear about it. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, the complexity is always very fascinating. So we really appreciate you explaining it to us. Yeah. Well, thank you. We want to thank Informa for having us here at the Edmonton Real Estate Forum. We want to thank First National for sponsoring us. And we want to thank the listeners for listening. Anybody interested in either mega projects or the Alberta market, this would be a great episode to share with your friends, contacts, and colleagues. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.